Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome to FT Politics, the Financial Times' podcast on all things British politics. I'm Sebastian Payne and we're back for our first episode of the new year. We'll be discussing what lies ahead for Theresa May's government, the bumps as it entered 2018 and the state of political party memberships. I'm delighted to be joined by our political editor, George Parker, chief political correspondent Jim Picard, political correspondent Laura Hughes and deputy comment editor Miranda Green. Thank you all for joining. So 2018 arrived and brought with it a few domestic problems for Theresa May's government. Rail fares were hiked up by an average of 3.4% to much grumbling and disgruntlement from commuters emerging from the festive season. The NHS had to cancel thousands of planned operations, leaving the Prime Minister and Health Secretary apologising for the problems that they might have had something to do with. And the speculation continues about a big relaunch and a cabinet reshuffle in the coming weeks and whether Mrs May will keep her top team in place. George Parker, let's begin with the domestic things this week. So the NHS has been a bit of a problem for the government that every year we say it's going to be a bad winter for the NHS and this one actually did seem to be and these cancelled operations have been an open go for Labour really. Yes they have. It's marred the uh, the vaunted relaunch of the government at the first part of 2018. Labour has had an open goal as you say saying it's been, this is all the result of underfunding of the NHS over many Tory years of austerity. I think the truth is that although you know, we are describing this as a winter crisis, this is not a real winter crisis for the NHS. It's not a flu epidemic, which is obviously the thing that keeps Jeremy Hunt, the health secretary, lying awake at night. I think the last time we had a proper flu epidemic was in 2009. So things could be an awful lot worse. And you get the sense with the cancellation of these routine operations or the postponement, at least, of the routine operations, they're trying to build a f- bit of flexibility into the system in case things get a bit worse. And I guess, Law Hughes, the thing is that... Um, Labour has a very easy thing to say. They were going to put a lot more money into the NHS in their manifesto in June's general election. They simply say it's underfunded. And what was quite striking this week is that Nick Timothy, who's the Prime Minister's former policy guru, who so certainly has links into Downing Street, he wrote an article saying we need to spend a lot more money and we need a royal commission. So they're certainly thinking in conservative circles that the status quo can't hold for that much longer. Yeah, no, definitely. And it didn't look very good for Theresa May, actually, because when she first went out and spoke about it, she didn't apologise. Jeremy Hunt, by contrast, the health secretary, did apologise. The next day, Theresa May comes out and she does make that apology and it made some of the front pages this morning, which I think played out politically a lot better for her. But this isn't good news for her because obviously the relationship that she has with Simon Stevens is very strained. We wrote about this earlier the week, it's a very transactional relationship. He had a much closer ties with George Osborne, was a lot more involved in the budget. He's been calling for more money. Theresa May then before Christmas held him personally responsible for getting the NHS through this winter. But they're still saying there's not enough money. But the answer with all we know with all these things is 
where are they going to get this money from? Simon Stevens is a particularly interesting one because he was a useful crutch for the Cameron government in a way because he would say, I need X money for NHS England. George Osborne would say you could have it and then that sort of closed down the argument of the Tories underfunding the NHS. But Simon Stevens spoke out and he was almost sacked, I believe, at the end of last year for saying we need a lot more spending here. And I think there is this consensus growing in Whitehall that you can get a lot with efficiencies, you can do this and that, but really fundamentally... If we want the NHS to continue, it just needs more money. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely right. But it's always going to be a question of where you get it from. And Labour will continue to promise that they will put more money in. But the public will continuously ask them where they're going to get that from. You're you're right, Sam. There is some deep thinking going on in the government. It's quite interesting that Nick McPherson, the former Permanent Secretary at the Treasury, was tweeting this week about the fact that maybe the time had come to address the, this sort of unthinkable in terms of Treasury thinking, which is hypothecating taxation to fund additional spending for the National mm. Health Service. I mean, the Treasury hates the idea of earmarking taxes for specific spending lines. But maybe, given the exalted status of the NHS in public life, maybe it's the only way you can persuade people to pay more taxes to fund it, because there is no money and the government has been allergic to putting up taxes. And in fact, it may find it very difficult to put up taxes given the narrow uh, majority in the House of Commons, unless it's somehow they find a way of earmarking it for for the health service. I think that's very true that people in the country probably would accept an NHS tax mm. if it was to say, OK, this money is going directly to the health service. Because people, as you said, you know, it was Nigel Lawson who infamously said the NHS is the closest thing Britain has to a national religion. And having this big conversation that we're promised never really happens. Theresa May tried to have that back in June, but then it was turned into the dementia tax mm. and back into petty political politics. And one of the things Nick Timothy suggested was a royal commission to try and have a cross-party consensus which seems optimistic to think that would actually really get anywhere because it would just get back into party politics. But it's also about efficiencies I think you know if you're going to ask the public to pay more money they have to believe that it's going to go in the right areas and I think that's been a massive problem over the years is that the public think it's all going into bureaucracy and that the NHS isn't run as efficiently as it could be and who's getting paid what at the very top and that would probably if there was this commission, that sort of thing would need to be looked at. So the public felt, yeah, you know what, I will put a bit more money in because I trust it might go to a hip operation, not some pocket of a big chief exec. Hmm. Then combined with that, we had trains and obviously it's a favourite British pastime to grumble about the railways and the cost and state of them. And obviously this inflation linked rise has got people very annoyed, particularly with comparisons, unfair or otherwise to European countries. Very bizarrely, George, the transport secretary was in Qatar um, Hmm. this week, seemed a bit of a misstep for the government that Chris Grayling's normally something of a lightning rod for criticism and is happy to go out and talk talk up against transport unions and Labour politicians. But going to Qatar seems really, really bizarre at a time when they should have been explaining, you know, that these rail fares are required to fund infrastructure. Yeah, it was a misstep and it was a slightly excruciating lobby briefing on the Tuesday morning, the first one of 2018, when people were, all the questions were about why is Chris Grayling on a tour of the Middle East, went on to Turkey. It was a three day trip, I think not explaining this to angry commuters. So again, there's been a difficult uh, start to the year for the government. But the one thing I I think I would say about the rail industry, and you made this point in a column you wrote this week, Seb, is that actually, in spite of our national interest in grumbling about the railways, the railways have improved immeasurably over the last 20 years. They're now among the safest railways in Europe. And there's been a concerted effort by the government to shift support for the railways away from the taxpayer and onto the people who actually use the railways, which is one of the reasons why fares have been going up so much. 
And the thing that detractors of the railways always neglect to mention is the fact that rail usage, passenger numbers, has doubled, more than doubled, since privatisation in the mid-90s. So the idea that it's a national disgrace and a disaster area, I think, is not borne out by the by the by the statistics. It's been quite an interesting public debate, Laura, because of course Labour has this plan to renationalise yeah. the railways, which we've still not got any costings on it, I don't believe, about how exactly that would work and also how it would improve because it's this sort of tacit thing that if it's state run, it will be better. But my view on the nationalisation is it actually really matter you know, where the railways sit. It's about the management and who runs them. And there's no basis that just because they were state-owned and run by the Department for Transport, which has a very questionable record on the railways, would do a better job. But still, it's a very easy argument. And a lot of opinion polling shows the public quite likes it. Also, they just want something different, perhaps. And and they might not have thought it all totally through. And would you actually get a better service if it was nationalised? God forbid. Mm. (laughs) And, you know, but... Yes, it's improved, but actually last year, remember the Southern, the strikes and the service on Southern Rail, and if you're one of those passengers out there, and then they were, you were suddenly being told that your ticket was going to go up in price, you would feel pretty outraged. There clearly is some level of a, there's a problem here. We've seen strikes over the past, you know, last year, a number of strikes at the beginning of this year, so nothing's perfect, and obviously a lot more work needs to be done. Again, it's about efficiencies. If people are going to pay more, they'll expect a really good service and but, a quick service. But the answer that nationalisation is the answer for example, to Laura mentioned Southern Rail, it's, it's not borne out by the facts. Wherever we've seen some of the biggest disruption in the trans- transport system in the last 10 years has been on the London Underground, which is a publicly owned body. So the idea that publicly run railways are less prone to strikes than privately run ones is not not borne out by the facts. And we've had this idea from Labour that they're somehow unsafe, which, as you said, George, is just not true, that actually on passenger incidents, you know, we have the safest major railway in Europe at the moment. So, But again, it's sort of this lack of the government actually explaining mm. this to people. There's just yeah. a big void. And, you know, one thing that struck me this week, London Bridge, which is the oldest station in the capital, just up the road from the FT's offices, um, has had this five-year one billion pound makeover which opened on time which is very surprising for a British infrastructure mm. project and you could imagine the government should actually be out there you know Paul Maynard who's the rail minister if even if Chris <laughs> Grayling is off in Qatar <laughs> should have been there saying well yes we understand it's difficult and we're going to look at ways of improving but this is what you're getting a big brand new shiny station with more capacity more trains and a concourse the size of Wembley Stadium I totally agree with that there were no ministers available at no. all to, to, to tell the good news story about the railways and Passengers rightfully are complaining about the fare, the fares going up, but it's a symptom of more money going into the railways. And you only have to look back at the mm. way that the British Railway has been transformed in the last 20 years. You mentioned London Bridge. Look at King's Cross Station in London. Look at the way St Pancras has been transformed as well. There's a renaissance going on in the British railway industry. And the idea that if you go, there's some Shangri-La of state-run railways in continental Europe, I invite you to go to the Gare du Midi in Brussels or the Gare du Nord in Paris and compare it to St Pancras and ask yourself which is the better model. And we've got Crossrail coming, the night tube expanding. HS2 as well, uh, if it ever eventually gets there, which I think One day. gets to the heart of it, that really we just don't like building things in Britain, so we've had to make do and mend with our railways instead of you know doing what they did in France and Germany, just build brand new ones. But finally, George, the last thing on the horizon is really about Mrs May's position. So again, she's had her Christmas break and apparently did actually have a decent break mm. this year, we understand, and wasn't working too hard over the Christmas period. But there's this idea of a relaunch coming, and obviously I think they owe saying in Westminster is uh, whenever you have a relaunch you know things are really in trouble <laughs> but this idea they're going to really have a reboot of their domestic policy agenda to say it's not all about Brexit despite what you might think and have a bit of a change around in the cabinet so what's going on there? Well 
Januarys are always uh, months where government, where government ministers go away and prime ministers go away and recharge their batteries. I think we have to do a, make a big statement in January. So I'd be very interested to see how this domestic re- policy relaunch goes. We've been waiting to find out what the meat is on Theresa May's domestic policy ever since the election. In fact, going back to July 2016, when she became prime minister, there's been precious little evidence of it, lots of white papers and green papers. So we'll see what comes of that. I think in terms of the reshuffle, reshuffles are those th- one of those things that people think will change the political weather, but often they t- change the political weather for the worse because they're difficult things to exercise. You, the ratio of disappointed to happy ministers is um, or MPs is quite high because you, know, you, you, you promote someone, you're sacking someone, and you're disappointing four or five people who haven't got the job they thought they should have got. So it, that's a difficult thing to do. And I, my guess is that the reshuffle will be less extensive than some people have been predicting. I think probably the main holders of the offices of state, so Boris Johnson, Philip Hammond and Amber Rubb, will probably stay where they are. I think a big theme will be the injection of some of the really talented MPs from the 2010 and particularly the 2015 intake, more women as well, into the lower and middle ranks of the government. So that Theresa May is looking slightly in the longer term, bringing people in that she can actually inject into the higher ranks in the next reshuffle after this one. Because Laura, someone from Downing Street said to me to think of it more of a sort of a pincer point reshuffle. You're going to go in and just extract key people who are not doing well in briefs now. You could say Chris Gray in the transport secretary <laughs> might be one of those. But on the other hand, he's not doing a bad enough job that, you know, he's an old friend of Theresa May. They were campaigning on the doorsteps of Wimbledon when they when he was 26. So, you know, the way she would shun an old friend like you wonder, will she do that instead of focusing on areas where... They do need new people. So I think education seems to be a bit of a consensus that Justin Greening is edging towards the exit door. Patrick McLaughlin, I think, has crossed the exit door, if not physically, mentally. And then on those, a lot of those other levels within the government, as George said, in the ministerial level, it's a lot of sort of deadwood eye sort of thing when you look at people who are not really making cut through and making progress in their briefs. What do you sort of think is most likely to happen? Well, it's been rumoured that perhaps she might actually, instead of replacing Damien Green, she might create a new Whitehall department that could focus on one of her domestic agendas, such as housing, mm. that, you know, that used to, a department that used to exist. That might be quite a clever way of creating a new position for someone without upsetting anybody else. I think George is right. I think actually the people to watch are the new young Tories that she brings in to some junior ministerial positions. When we talk about a Theresa May reboot, we're also talking about a government reboot. We're talking about rebranding, re-imaging. She'll be thinking ahead to perhaps potentially not standing in the next election. <laughs> Who will replace her? And if she was clever, she might listen to the opinion polls and look at her cabinet, which is all terribly old and pale and male and she might want to get some new young women so it's interesting to see who will replace Patrick McLaughlin as Tory party chair if that's a new young Tory figure who might appeal to younger voters that actually for me is more interesting is what is the long-term game plan for her and James Cleverly has been mentioned in that context, who is one of the yeah. new intake, sort of socially, social media savvy and... Um, very popular and with very young people. Young people, probably young people and have good Knows communication media. He wrote a very good FT op-ed basically <laughs> setting out his store for Chairman. Well, on that point, this talk sort of seems to be potentially some combination of James Cleverly and Brandon Lewis, yeah. who's currently the very well-respected and very well-liked in Team May immigration minister. Mm. And the combination of them at CCHQ would be very effective, I think, compared to what it's doing at the moment. The one name you missed out, George, from that top team is David Davis here, which has been the subject of much speculation mm. about whether he's going to stay on now. The arguments for him staying on are obviously that he's Brexit secretary. We're still right in the middle of Brexit and he's still notionally the chief negotiator. So would it be a good idea removing him? But 
On the other hand, ever since Mrs. May's chief Sherpa, Ollie Robbins, went from Degsview to Downing Street, mm. he's been somewhat degraded in terms of the his role there. He's also, you know, people who've spoken to him seem to feel that he, you know, he's, it's very tough going for a man who is not necessarily a details-heavy persona. So I think in that sense, is there any chance David Davis could make a surprise exit? Well, it's an interesting question. What I'm told by Downing Street is that David Davis can do the job as long as he wants to. And I think that's an interesting formulation. Crucial words there. Whether he wants to do it. And I think that's a doubt in the minds of Number 10. Does he still have the appetite to do the job? And we know that David Davis has a record of um, unpredictable career choices, walking out (laughs) of jobs as he did with that by-election back in 2008 or 9, whenever it was. So I'm told by David Davis's supporters that he does want to carry on. He's full of beans. He's written a big op-ed setting out his vision for Brexit in 2018. But I'm also told by friends, I'm sure you've picked this up as well, Seb, that he was feeling quite, someone told me, he was knackered at the end of 2018. There were a number of unforced errors. There was the whole episode of the, the impact assessments, which turned out not to be... And the the frustration that he had that he wasn't in the room when the final deal was being negotiated with the Irish and with Brussels. And then he was the front man and had to go out and explain it and sell it. And that's a frustrating and in a way slightly humiliating position for him to be in. But anyway, we'll wait and see. It'll be interesting to see what happens. I'm told that he does want to stay on. And if he does, Downing Street would love him to carry on doing it. I think there are also lots of Eurosceptic backbench Tory MPs that use David Davis as their sort of link into what's actually going on. Who'd be very disappointed. I don't think it politically would be super, super sound for Theresa May to remove David Davis or for him to resign at this point. And I think the point we've talked about on the podcast before is that if he went, who would be there in teammate? Because David Davis is still very close to the Prime Minister yeah. and is, you know, liked in Downing Street and they value his input. Who is going to be the one who can sell those compromises to the Conservative Party that are going to come this year? Because the only other figure that comes to mind for me is actually Michael Gove, who was obviously rising in stature this week with another speech <laughs> on the environment you've reported on Laura. But I think really he's one of the key figures who can actually say to them, look, this is why you have to accept money, a standstill transition, because of this longer term go. It's not, you know, certainly Philip Hammond's not going to do that. No. I don't think Boris Johnson has the stature in the party to do that either. No, it would have to be a Brexit backing senior figure who is respected and liked by the most difficult backbench MPs that could potentially give the Prime Minister a very big headache if they're not happy with what she comes back with. Mm. And Steve Baker, I suppose, is the only other person who would be a long shot. He's the junior mm. minister in that department, but is respected by Eurosceptics yeah. in the party and seem to be doing a good job inside the Brexit department. The respective membership of Britain's political parties have long been different to the country at large, but this week we found out just how different. Queen Mary University has conducted a huge survey of the members of Conservative, Labour and the Liberal Democrats, which has just shown how their attitudes and politics actually differ to their MPs and the country. So Miranda Green, if we just begin, the most striking stuff was about the Conservative Party here because we're sort of 10, 12 years into the modernisation project, which was meant to heave the Conservative Conservative Party in line with modern Britain. But actually, these results of this survey so it's actually not that different to probably how it was 10 years ago and their views on Brexit, on taxes and even on the death penalty are not quite in chime with the country as a whole. It's completely fascinating because of also it shows that the Conservative Party is very different from the other political parties and is the outlier. So when members of the Conservative Party are asked to place themselves and their party on the spectrum of left to right, for example, to use the most simple example, they're clearly on the right. And then all the other parties, including the SNP, who are also part 
part of this survey are sort of clustered together on the centre left towards left and in fact none see themselves on the far left which is also interesting and then in terms of age profile in terms of as you said not just views on things like austerity where you would expect the Conservative Party members views to be different from some others but even on things like gay marriage you know famously an initiative of the Cameron coalition government they're not very supportive of that and they also are really really comparing unfavorably in terms of activity levels and supporting their own party and this is one of the key challenges for the conservatives almost a quarter of Tory members did absolutely nothing to support their party during the last general election and that means they didn't even put up a poster they didn't say click like once on any Facebook post you know they're just absent from the national conversation at election time it's really quite striking the Conservative Party stuff in detail because it's amazing to think that as recently as 1997 the Conservatives were the biggest political party in Western Europe with three quarters of a million members in the mid-1990s before they order started to decline and obviously Labour saw a rise under Tony Blair and then it started to fall particularly after Iraq and then obviously Jeremy Corbyn came along and that rose again but I think the Conservative the active of the activists is a very key point here and when I was researching a piece I wrote at the end of last year about the future of the party, I spoke to a very interesting chap called John Stafford who runs this campaign for Conservative Party democracy and he said for a long time he reckons that less than 10% are very active members and he thinks the whole membership is close to 70,000 which is huge given whereabouts it once was, Jim. I'm going to be argumentative and I'm going to rewind back to what you guys were saying about modern Britain and the Tories not being in tune with modern Britain. Now, Clearly what the survey shows <laughs> is that they're not in, in tune with liberal, cosmopolitan, Metropolitan media, Britain, London yeah. Britain. But actually, what's really interesting is that if you were to survey the general populace, I would say from looking at some of the surveys, nearly half the public do want to bring back the death penalty. On gay marriage, an awful lot of people are not very keen on it. And on things like there should be more discipline in schools, the three of us probably don't like the idea of bringing back corporal punishment in schools or or the cane or whatever you want to call it. Correct. There's, there's quite an appetite out there. Mo- you call it modern Britain, but there are some, inverted commas, old ideas that still linger on, even in modern Britain. And so what's quite interesting to me is that you've got the three centre-left parties clustering around in opposition to some of those views, but, but the views are still potentially quite popular. I suppose the problem the Tories have is that as people get older and die off, then those views are going to become less popular. And that's the problem they have is is attracting young people, but they're still very attractive to older people. Very true. But it's also to do with this changing dynamic of elections, isn't it? Because, I mean, I would say if you compare the 2015 general election to the 2017 election we've just had... In 2015, you know, George Osborne was able to win an election and get a majority for the Tory party by an incredibly traditional set of photo opportunities where he put on a hard hat and showed that the Tories were doing something about the economy, as he would as he would have, have argued. And by 2017, we had this transformed landscape with this army of very, very motivated people on the left disrupting the pattern. And of course, it, with the SNP as well, you've got really highly motivated and very satisfied 
party memberships who transformed the, the outlook in Scotland. So I don't think you can sort of rest on the assumptions of the electorate in the way that you could have done maybe two or three years ago. So I absolutely understand what you're saying, but I think elections have changed. But Jim, this obviously brings on to Labour, which, as, as I said, its membership has completely changed, both in terms of its size and also the views and the makeup of it over recent years. And as Miranda was saying, in the 2017 election, the Labour grassroots and also momentum, which is another, I think, sort of 20,000 members at the moment or so, which mm. are the grassroots outriders for Jeremy Corbyn. That's been very helpful to Labour but it's also played a big role in pushing its views back to its core territory and I guess the thing for the Conservatives is there's this constant push and pull between the metropolitan views and the views of its party and whereas (coughs) Labour is very much now much more in tune with the views of its grassroots than its MPs for example. Exactly and not necessarily in tune with many of its voters because this just shows how much I mean just to, to step back from it again I think this shows us very interesting things about the demographics of, of party members. And we see surveys of voters all the time. We don't see so many polls of members. And that's why this Tim Bell research is, is quite special. And when you look at the demographics, very, very white. Most members of all four parties that they surveyed, all very middle class, educated. There's quite a, clust- a clustering there. And also on age as well. And, ma- and male. They're well, overwhelmingly male. Particularly for Tories. Three quarters for Tories, but over half male for, for all the parties. And age-wise, very interesting that the average Labour member, 53, and the average Tory member, 57. And this is very different to the stereotype that we have kind of accepted, all of us, in the last few years, which is that the Tories are all uh, grey-haired and Labour members are all young. And when you look at momentum, that Seb just mentioned, the photographs are always of sort of cheering 25-year-olds, um, young, dynamic, and all the rest of it. But this is just a reminder that the Labour membership has changed enormously since Corbyn came along. It's gone from 200,000 to 600,000, but not all of those newcomers are spring chickens. And this plays a big role into leadership as well, Miranda, and vice versa, as well as just pushing their views, but also who is the leader, because um, Jeremy Corbyn won both of his leadership contest on the members ballot you know it was affected by other other things as well but with the conservatives whoever replaces Theresa May will be chosen by the party grassroots because remember back in in this in after some after David Cameron went there wasn't actually a contest because Andrea Leadsom dropped out and it became Theresa May by default but next time there probably will be a proper contest with lots of people and a lot of people will be pandering to the views of those grassroots so you've got you know sort of person who comes to mind, for example, is Pretty Patel, whose views are much more in line with the Tory grassroots than other parts. And that will place them quite well. Where, and, you know, it's actually in some ways remarkable that they went for David Cameron um, back in 2005. Well, absolutely. I remember that ele- uh, leadership election very well. And it did surprise us all. But you're, you're absolutely right. And, you know, this survey says that six out of 10 of the Labour members who've joined since the 2015 election actually did so within their minds, the ability to choose the leader. And that power over the leadership is seen as crucial to why actually get involved with any political party. But you're right, with the next Tory leadership election, this will be absolutely key, which is one of the reasons, but not the only one, why the the, the findings on what the memberships think about Brexit is also so interesting because there's such a strong divide here. All of the other party memberships are pretty much overwhelmingly 
not just opposed to Brexit, but also in favour of potentially another referendum on the eventual deal. And the Tory party is very anti-European, is happy about Brexit, doesn't want to see any resiling from it. If we have a leadership election in the Tory party before Brexit is resolved, you know, it could be yet another internal punch up over Europe for the Conservatives. And yet the only thing to remind our listeners of is that the Conservative Party, the only two candidates are put to the grassroots to decide and those two candidates are picked by the MPs. So they still have a kind of closed shop in terms of what they believe. And a hang hang em, flog em candidate is less likely to get the chance to go over the heads of the MPs to the members. Well, this is obviously Unlike what Labour. happened with Jeremy Corbyn because they put forward uh, four candidates, I believe, who got the threshold. And Jeremy Corbyn only scraped in at the last moment, if you remember those very tense moments, and he was there just to widen the debate. And you, I can completely see with the Conservatives doing the same thing, where there's someone who, in that final two who represents you know, a perspective. You can imagine a sort of continuity Cameroon figure like Amber Rudd, for mm. example, versus a very you know hardline breakster like Pretty Patel. And you put those two together together and which one are they going to choose exactly although they do have the example of what happened to the Labour Party before them as a very visible reminder of what can happen in if you widen the debate too much and I think while we're on Labour I mean one of the really interesting things here is the research on Brexit and my point earlier about who reflects modern Britain Modern Britain voted for Brexit, let's not forget. And well, modern, half mo- of modern Britain voted for Brexit. A majority of modern Britain voted for Brexit, <laughs> and an even bigger majority of modern Britain doesn't want a rerun, does not want to go back over this yet again. And yet the members of Labour, SNP and Lib Dems, 78%, 87%, 91% respectively, want another referendum. So they are out of tune with the public, and the Labour ones are out of tune with several million Labour voters who were a bit Brexity. But the kind of amusing thing here is that Jeremy Corbyn came along, didn't he? And he said, I want a democratic Labour Party where I do what the members say and not what these cosseted career politician MPs say. And yet, I mean, he is a terrible hypocrite because when it's an issue like Syria where the grassroots agree with him, then that's fabulous and he can sort of crush all dissent within the PLP, the Parliamentary Labour Party. But when it comes to Europe... His members who are paying the Labour Party fees do want a second referendum, do want to push things in a very different direction, but he is triangulating in the way that New Labour used to do, and back then he hated it, but now necessity has forced it upon him. You're surely not suggesting that Jeremy Corbyn is taking a position out of political pragmatism rather than principle, Jim. Well, it's very interesting to watch. Well, I'd recommend to our listeners you do check out this research because it is very fascinating on the state of our politics and our parties. That's it for this week's episode of FT Politics. Thank you very much to George, Jim, Laura and Miranda for joining us. We're back next week for another instalment. FT Politics was presented by Sebastian Payne and produced by Madison Derbyshire. So until next time, thanks for listening. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. 
As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. 